Welcome to Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, translated by Henry Beveridge. We are continuing this reading first with the argument to Book 2, followed by Book 2, Chapter 1. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now do SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14.6 Book 2 of the Knowledge of God the Redeemer in Christ as first manifested to the fathers, under the law, and thereafter to us under the gospel. There are seventeen chapters. First, the argument. The first part of the Apostles' Creed, these the knowledge of God the Creator being disposed of, we now come to the second part, which relates to the knowledge of God as a Redeemer in Christ. The subjects treated of accordingly are, first, the occasion of redemption, viz. Adam's fall, and, secondly, redemption itself. The first five chapters are devoted to the former subject and the remainder to the latter. Under the occasion of redemption, the fall is considered not only in a general way, but also specifically in its effects. Hence, the first four chapters treat of original sin, free will, the corruption of human nature, and the operation of God in the heart. The fifth chapter contains a refutation of the arguments usually used in support of free will. The subject of redemption may be reduced to five particular heads. Number one, the character of him in whom salvation for lost man must be sought. Chapter six. Number two, how he was manifested to the world, namely, in a twofold manner. First, under the law. Here, the Decalogue is expounded, and some other points relating to the law discussed, chapters 7 and 8. Secondly, under the Gospel, here the resemblance and difference of the two dispensations are considered, chapters 9, 10, and 11. Number three, what kind of person Christ was and behoved to be in order to perform the office of mediator, viz. God and man in one person, chapters 12, 13, and 14. Number four, for what end he was sent into the world by the Father. Here Christ's prophetically, kingly, and priestly offices are considered. Chapter 15. Number 5. In what way, or by what successive steps, Christ fulfilled the office of our Redeemer. Chapter 16. Here are considered his crucifixion, death, burial, descent to hell, resurrection, ascension to heaven, and seat at the right hand of the Father, together with the practical use of the whole doctrine. Chapter 17 contains an answer to the question whether Christ is properly said to have merited the grace of God for us. Book 2 of the Knowledge of God the Redeemer in Christ as first manifested to the fathers under the law and thereafter to us under the gospel. There are 17 chapters. Chapter 1. There are 11 sections. Section 1. 
It was not without reason that the ancient Proverbs so strongly recommended to man the knowledge of himself. For if it is deemed disgraceful to be ignorant of things pertaining to the business of life, much more disgraceful is self-ignorance, in consequence of which we miserably deceive ourselves in matters of the highest moment, and so walk blindfold. But the more useful the precept is, the more careful we must be not to use it preposterously, as we see certain philosophers have done. For they, when exhorting man to know himself, state the motive to be that he may not be ignorant of his own excellence and dignity. They wish him to see nothing in himself, but what will fill him with vain confidence and inflate him with pride. But self-knowledge consists in this first, when reflecting on what God gave us at our creation, and still continues graciously to give, we perceive how great the excellence of our nature would have been had its integrity remained, and at the same time remember that we have nothing of our own, but depend entirely on God, from whom we hold at pleasure whatever he has seen it meet to bestow. Secondly, when viewing our miserable condition since Adam's fall, all confidence and boasting are overthrown. We blush for shame and feel truly humble. For as God at first formed us in his own image, that he might elevate our minds to the pursuit of virtue and the contemplation of eternal life, so to prevent us from heartlessly burying those noble qualities which distinguish us from the lower animals, it is of importance to know that we were endued with reason and intelligence, in order that we might cultivate a holy and honorable life, and regard a blessed immortality as our destined aim. At the same time, it is impossible to think of our primeval dignity without being immediately reminded of the sad spectacle of our ignominy and corruption ever since we fell from our original in the person of our first parent. In this way we feel dissatisfied with ourselves and become truly humble, while we are inflamed with new desires to seek after God, in whom each may regain those good qualities of which all are found to be utterly destitute. Section 2 in examining ourselves, the search which divine truth enjoins, and the knowledge which it demands, are such as may indispose us to everything like confidence in our own powers, leave us devoid of all means of boasting, and so incline us to submission. This is the course which we must follow if we would attain to the true goal both in speculation and practice. I am not unaware how much more plausible the view is, which invites us rather to ponder on our good qualities than to contemplate what must overwhelm us with shame, our miserable destitution and ignominy. There is nothing more acceptable to the human mind than flattery, and accordingly when told that its endowments are of a high order, it is apt to be excessively credulous. Hence it is not strange that the greater part of mankind have erred so egregiously in this matter. Owing to the innate self-love by which all are blinded, we most willingly persuade ourselves that we do not possess a single quality which is deserving of hatred, and hence, independent of any countenance from without, general credit is given to the very foolish idea that man is perfectly sufficient of himself for all the purposes of a good and happy life. If any are disposed to think more modestly, and concede somewhat to God that they may not seem to arrogate everything as their own, still, in making the division, they apportion matters, so that the chief ground of confidence and boasting always remains with themselves. Then, if a discourse is pronounced which flatters the pride spontaneously springing up in man's inmost heart, nothing seems more delightful. 
accordingly in every age he who is most forward in extolling the excellence of human nature is received with the loudest applause but be this heralding of human excellence what it may by teaching man to rest in himself it does nothing more than fascinate by its sweetness and at the same time so delude as to drown in perdition all who assent to it for what avails it to proceed in vain confidence to deliberate resolve plan and attempt what we deem pertinent to the purpose and at the very outset prove deficient and destitute both of sound intelligence and true virtue though we still confidently persist till we rush headlong on destruction but this is the best that can happen to those who put confidence in their own powers whosoever therefore gives heed to those teachers who merely employ us in contemplating our good qualities so far from making progress in self-knowledge will be plunged into the most pernicious ignorance section three while revealed truth concurs with the general consent of mankind in teaching that the second part of wisdom consists in self-knowledge they differ greatly as to the method by which this knowledge is to be acquired in the judgment of the flesh man deems his self-knowledge complete when with overweening confidence in his own intelligence and integrity he takes courage and spurs himself on to virtuous deeds and when declaring war upon vice he uses his utmost endeavor to attain to the honorable and the fair but he who tries himself by the standard of divine justice finds nothing to inspire him with confidence and hence the more thorough his self-examination the greater his despondency abandoning all dependence on himself he feels that he is utterly incapable of duly regulating his conduct it is not the will of god however that we should forget the primeval dignity which he bestowed on our first parents a dignity which may well stimulate us to the pursuit of goodness and justice it is impossible for us to think of our first original or the end for which we were created without being urged to meditate on immortality and to seek the kingdom of god but such meditation so far from raising our spirits rather cast them down and make us humble for what is our original one from which we have fallen what the end of our creation one from which we have altogether strayed so that weary of our miserable lot we groan and groaning sigh for a dignity now lost when we say that man should see nothing in himself which can raise his spirits our meaning is that he possesses nothing on which he can proudly plume himself hence in considering the knowledge which man ought to have of himself it seems proper to divide it thus first to consider the end for which he was created and the qualities by no means contemptible qualities with which he was endued thus urging him to meditate on divine worship and the future life and secondly to consider his faculties or rather want of faculties a want which when perceived will annihilate all his confidence and cover him with confusion the tendency of the former view is to teach him what his duty is of the latter to make him aware how far he is able to perform it we shall treat of both in their proper order section four as the act which god punished so severely must have been not a trivial fault but a heinous crime it will be necessary to attend to the peculiar nature of the sin which produced adam's fall and to provoke god to inflict such fearful vengeance on the whole human race the common idea of sensual intemperance is childish 
the sum and substance of all virtues, could not consist in abstinence from a single fruit amid a general abundance of every delicacy that could be desired, the earth with heavy fertility yielding not only abundance, but also endless variety. We must therefore look deeper than sensual intemperance. The prohibition to touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a trial of obedience that Adam, by observing it, might prove his willing submission to the command of God. For the very term shows the end of the precept to have been to keep him contented with his lot, and not allow him arrogantly to aspire beyond it. The promise which gave him hope of eternal life as long as he should eat of the tree of life, and, on the other hand, the fearful denunciation of death the moment he should taste of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, were meant to prove and exercise his faith. Hence it is not difficult to infer in what way Adam provoked the wrath of God. Augustine, indeed, is not far from the mark when he says in Psalm 19 that pride was the beginning of all evil, because had not man's ambition carried him higher than he was permitted, he might have continued in his first estate. A further definition, however, must be derived from the kind of temptation which Moses describes when, by the subtlety of the devil, the woman faithlessly abandoned the command of God, her fall obviously had its origin in disobedience. This Paul confirms when he says that by the disobedience of one man all were destroyed. At the same time, it is to be observed that the first man revolted against the authority of God, not only in allowing himself to be ensnared by the wiles of the devil, but also by despising the truth and turning aside to lies. Assuredly, when the word of God is despised, all reverence for him is gone. His majesty cannot be duly honored among us, nor his worship maintained in its integrity, unless we hang, as it were, upon his lips. Hence, infidelity was at the root of the revolt. From infidelity, again, sprang ambition and a pride together with ingratitude because Adam, by longing for more than was allotted him, manifested contempt for the great liberality with which God had enriched him. It was surely monstrous impiety that a son of earth should deem it little to have been made in the likeness unless he were also made the equal of God. If the apostasy by which man withdraws from the authority of his Maker, nay, petulantly shakes off his allegiance to him, is a foul and execrable crime, it is in vain to extenuate the sin of Adam, nor was it simple apostasy. It was accompanied with foul insult to God, the guilty pair assenting to Satan's calumnies when he charged God with malice, envy, and falsehood. In fine, infidelity opened the door to ambition, and ambition was the parent of a rebellion, man casting off the fear of God, and giving free vent to his lust. Hence, Bernard truly says that in the present day a door of salvation is open to us when we receive the gospel with our ears, just as by the same entrance, when thrown open to Satan, death was admitted. Never would Adam have dared to show any repugnance to the command of God if he had not been incredulous as to his word. The strongest curb to keep all his affections under due restraint would have been the belief that nothing was better than to cultivate righteousness by obeying the commands of God, and that the highest possible felicity was to be loved by him. Man, therefore, when carried away by the blasphemies of Satan, did his very utmost to annihilate the whole glory of God. Section 5 As Adam's spiritual life would have consisted in remaining united and bound to his Maker, so estrangement from him was the death of his soul. 
Nor is it strange that he who perverted the whole order of nature in heaven and earth deteriorated his race by his revolt. Quote, the whole creation groaneth, unquote, saith St. Paul, quote, being made subject to vanity not willingly. Unquote. Romans 8, 20 and 22. If the reason is asked, there cannot be a doubt that creation bears part of the punishment deserved by man for whose use all other creatures were made. Therefore, since through man's fault a curse has extended above and below over all the regions of the world, there is nothing unreasonable in its extending to all his offspring. After the heavenly image in man was effaced, he not only was himself punished by withdrawal of the ornaments in which he had been arrayed, viz. wisdom, virtue, justice, truth, and holiness, and by the substitution in their place of those dire pests, blindness, impotence, vanity, impurity, and unrighteousness, but he involved his posterity also, and plunged them in the same wretchedness. This is the hereditary corruption to which early Christian writers gave the name of original sin, meaning by the term the deprivation of a nature formerly good and pure. The subject gave rise to much discussion, there being nothing more remote from common apprehension than that the fault of one should render all guilty, and so become a common sin. This seems to be the reason why the oldest doctors of the church only glance obscurely at the point, or at least do not explain it so clearly as it required. This timidity, however, could not prevent the rise of a Pelagius with his profane fiction that Adam sinned only to his own hurt but did no hurt to his posterity. Satan, by thus craftily hiding the disease, tried to render it incurable. But when it was clearly proved from Scripture that the sin of the first man passed to all his posterity, recourse was had to the cavil, that it passed by imitation and not by propagation. The Orthodox, therefore, and more especially Augustine, labored to show that we are not corrupted by acquired wickedness, but bring an innate corruption from the very womb it was the greatest impudence to deny this. But no man will wonder at the presumption of the Pelagians and Celestians, who has learned from the writings of that holy man how extreme the effrontery of these heretics was. Surely there is no ambiguity in David's confession. Quote, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Unquote. Psalm 51, 5. His object in the passage is not to throw blame on his parents but the better to commend the goodness of God towards him, he properly reiterates the confession of impurity from his very birth. As it is clear that there was no peculiarity in David's case, it follows that it is only an instance of the common lot of the whole human race. All of us, therefore, descending from an impure seed, come into the world tainted with the contagion of sin. Nay, before we behold the light of the sun, we are in God's sight, defiled and polluted. Quote, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean, not one, unquote, says the book of Job. Job 14.4 Section 6 We thus see that the impurity of parents is transmitted to their children, so that all without exception are originally depraved. The commencement of this depravity will not be found until we ascend to the first parent of all as the fountainhead. We must therefore hold it for certain that, in regard to human nature, Adam was not merely a progenitor, but, as it were, a root, and that, accordingly, by his corruption, the whole human race was deservedly vitiated.
This is plain from the contrast which the Apostle draws between Adam and Christ. Quote, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Unquote. Romans 5:19-21. To what quibble will the Pelagians here recur? That the sin of Adam was propagated by imitation? Is the righteousness of Christ then available to us only, insofar as it is an example held forth for our imitation? Can any man tolerate such blasphemy? But if, out of all controversy, the righteousness of Christ and thereby life is ours by communication, it follows that both of these were lost in Adam, that they might be recovered in Christ, whereas sin and death were brought in by Adam, that they might be abolished in Christ. There is no obscurity in the words, quote, As by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous, unquote. Accordingly, the relation subsisting between the two is this, As Adam, by his ruin, involved and ruined us, so Christ, by his grace, restored us to salvation. In this clear light of truth, I cannot see any need of a longer or more laborious proof. Thus, too, in the first epistle to the Corinthians, when Paul would confirm believers in the confident hope of the resurrection, he shows that the life is recovered in Christ, which was lost in Adam. 1 Corinthians 15.22 Having already declared that all died in Adam, he now also openly testifies that all are imbued with the taint of sin. Condemnation, indeed, could not reach those who are altogether free from blame. But his meaning cannot be made clearer than from the other member of the sentence, in which he shows that the hope of life is restored in Christ. Everyone knows that the only mode in which this is done is when by wondrous communication Christ transfuses into us the power of his own righteousness, as it is elsewhere said, quote, The Spirit is life because of righteousness, unquote. 1 Corinthians 15.22 Therefore, the only explanation which can be given of the expression, quote, In Adam all died, unquote, is that he, by sinning, not only brought disaster and ruin upon himself, but also plunged our nature into like destruction, and that not only in one fault, in a manner not pertaining to us, but by the corruption into which he himself fell, he infected his whole seed. Paul never could have said that all are, quote, by nature the children of wrath, unquote, Ephesians 2.3, if they had not been cursed from the womb. And it is obvious that the nature they are referred to is not nature such as God created, but as vitiated in Adam. For it would have been most incongruous to make God the author of death. Adam, therefore, when he corrupted himself, transmitted the contagion to all his posterity. For a heavenly judge, even our Savior himself, declares that all are by birth vicious and depraved, when he says that, quote, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, unquote. John 3.6 And therefore, the gate of life is closed against all until they have been regenerated. Section 7 To the understanding of the subject, there is no necessity for an anxious discussion, which in no small degree perplexed the ancient doctors as to whether the soul of the child comes by transmission from the soul of the parent. 
it should be enough for us to know that Adam was made the depository of the endowments which God was pleased to bestow on human nature, and that, therefore, when he lost what he had received, he lost not only for himself, but for us all. Why feel any anxiety about the transmission of the soul, when we know that the qualities which Adam lost, he received for us not less than for himself? that they were not gifts to a single man, but attributes of the whole human race. There is nothing absurd, therefore, in the view that when he was divested, his nature was left naked and destitute, that he, having been defiled by sin, the pollution extends to all his seed. Thus, from a corrupt root, corrupt branches proceeding transmit their corruption to the saplings which spring from them. The children, being vitiated in their parent, conveyed the taint to the grandchildren. In other words, corruption commencing in Adam is, by perpetual descent, conveyed from those preceding to those coming after them. The cause of the contagion is neither in the substance of the flesh nor the soul, but God was pleased to ordain that those gifts which he had bestowed on the first man, that man should lose as well for his descendants as for himself. The Pelagian cattle, as to the improbability of children deriving corruption from pious parents, whereas they ought rather to be sanctified by their purity, is easily refuted. Children come not by spiritual regeneration, but carnal descent. Accordingly, as Augustine says, quote, both the condemned unbeliever and the acquitted believer beget offspring not acquitted, but condemned, because the nature which begets is corrupt, unquote. Moreover, though godly parents do in some measure contribute to the holiness of their offspring, this is by the blessing of God, a blessing, however, which does not prevent the primary and universal curse of the whole race from previously taking effect. Guilt is from nature, whereas sanctification is from supernatural grace. Section 8. But lest the thing itself of which we speak be unknown or doubtful, it will be proper to define original sin. I have no intention, however, to discuss all the definitions which different writers have adopted, but only to adduce the one which seems to me most accordant with truth. Original sin, then, may be defined a hereditary corruption and depravity of our nature extending to all the parts of the soul, which first makes us obnoxious to the wrath of God, and then produces in us works which in Scripture are termed works of the flesh. This corruption is repeatedly designated by Paul by the term sin, Galatians 5.19 while the works which proceed from it, such as adultery, fornication, theft, hatred, murder, revelings, he terms in the same way the fruits of sin, though in various passages of Scripture, and even by Paul himself, they are also termed sins. The two things, therefore, are to be distinctly observed, viz., that being thus perverted and corrupted in all the parts of our nature, we are, merely on account of such corruption, deservedly condemned by God, to whom nothing is acceptable but righteousness, innocence, and purity. This is not liability for another's fault. For when it is said that the sin of Adam has made us obnoxious to the justice of God, the meaning is not that we, who are in ourselves innocent and blameless, are bearing his guilt, but that, since by his transgression we are all placed under the curse, he is said to have brought us under obligation. Through him, however, not only has punishment been derived, but pollution instilled, for which punishment is justly due. Hence Augustine, though he often terms it another sin, that he may more clearly show how it comes to us by descent, at the same time asserts that it is each individual's own sin. 
and the apostle most distinctly testifies that quote, death passed upon all men for that all have sinned unquote, Romans 5.12 that is, are involved in original sin and polluted by its stain hence, even infants bringing their condemnation with them from their mother's womb suffer not for another's but for their own defect for although they have not yet produced the fruits of their own unrighteousness they have the seed implanted in them nay, their whole nature is, as it were, a seedbed of sin, and therefore cannot but be odious and abominable to God. Hence it follows, that it is properly deemed sinful in the sight of God, for there could be no condemnation without guilt. Next comes the other point, viz., that this perversity in us never ceases, but constantly produces new fruits, in other words, those works of the flesh which we formerly described just as a lighted furnace sends forth sparks and flames, or a fountain without ceasing pours out water. Hence, those who have defined original sin as the want of the original righteousness which we ought to have had, though they substantially comprehend the whole case, do not significantly enough express its power and energy. For our nature is not only utterly devoid of goodness, but so prolific in all kinds of evil that it can never be idle. Those who term it concupiscence use a word not very inappropriate, provided it were added, this however many will by no means concede, that everything which is in man, from the intellect to the will, from the soul even to the flesh, is defiled and pervaded with this concupiscence, or, to express it more briefly, that the whole man is in himself nothing else than concupiscence. Section 9 I have said, therefore, that all the parts of the soul were possessed by sin, ever since Adam revolted from the fountain of righteousness. For not only did the inferior appetites entice him, but abominable impiety seized upon the very citadel of the mind, and pride penetrated to his inmost heart. Romans 7.12 Book 4 Chapter 15 Sections 10-12 through 12. So that it is foolish and unmeaning to confine the corruption thence proceeding to what are called sensual motions, are to call it an excitement which allures, excites, and drags the single part which they call sensuality into sin. Here Peter Lombard has displayed gross ignorance. When investigating the seat of corruption, he says it is in the flesh, as Paul declares, not properly indeed, but as being more apparent in the flesh. As if Paul had meant that only a part of the soul, and not the whole nature, was opposed to supernatural grace. Paul himself leaves no room for doubt when he says that corruption does not dwell in one part only, but that no part is free from its deadly taint. For, speaking of corrupt nature, he not only condemns the inordinate nature of the appetites, but, in particular, declares that the understanding is subjected to blindness, and the heart to depravity. Ephesians 4:17 and 18 The third chapter of the Epistle to the Romans is nothing but a description of original sin, the same thing appears more clearly from the mode of renovation, for the spirit which is contrasted with the old man and the flesh denotes not only the grace by which the sensual or inferior part of the soul is corrected, but includes a complete reformation of all its parts, Ephesians 4.23. And, accordingly, Paul enjoins not only that gross appetites be suppressed, but that we be renewed in the spirit of our mind, Ephesians 4.23 as he elsewhere tells us, to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, Romans 12, 2. 
Hence it follows that that part in which the dignity and excellence of the soul are most conspicuous has not only been wounded, but so corrupted that mere cure is not sufficient. There must be a new nature. How far sin has seized both on the mind and heart we shall shortly see. Here I only wish briefly to observe that the whole man, from the crown of the head to the sole of the foot, is so deluged, as it were, that no part remains exempt from sin, and therefore everything which proceeds from him is imputed as sin. Thus Paul says that all carnal thoughts and affections are enmity against God, and consequently death. Romans 8, 7. Section 10. Let us have done, then, with those who dare to inscribe the name of God on their vices, because we say that men are born vicious. The divine workmanship, which they ought to look for in the nature of Adam, when still entire and uncorrupted, they absurdly expect to find in their depravity. The blame of our ruin rests with our own carnality, not with God, its only cause being our degeneracy from our original condition. And let no one here clamor that God might have provided better for our safety by preventing Adam's fall. This objection, which from the daring presumption implied in it, is odious to every pious mind, relates to the mystery of predestination which will afterwards be considered in its own place. Meanwhile, let us remember that our ruin is attributable to our own depravity, that we may not insinuate a charge against God himself, the author of nature. It is true that nature has received a mortal wound, but there is a great difference between a wound inflicted from without and one inherent in our first condition. It is plain that this wound was inflicted by sin, and therefore we have no ground of complaint except against ourselves. This is carefully taught in Scripture, for the preacher says, quote, Lo, this only have I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions. Unquote. Ecclesiastes 7.29 Since man, by the kindness of God, was made upright, but by his own infatuation fell away unto vanity, his destruction is obviously attributable only to himself. Section 11 We say, then, that man is corrupted by natural viciousness, but not by one which proceeded from nature. In saying that it proceeded not from nature, we mean that it was rather an adventitious event which befell man than a substantial property assigned to him from the beginning. We, however, call it natural to prevent anyone from supposing that each individual contracts it by depraved habit, whereas all receive it by hereditary law. And we have authority for so calling it. For, on the same ground, the apostle says that we are, quote, by nature the children of wrath. Unquote. Ephesians 2.3 How could God, who takes pleasure in the meanest of his works, be offended with the noblest of them all? The offense is not with the work itself, but the corruption of the work. Wherefore, if it is not improper to say that, in consequence of the corruption of human nature, man is naturally hateful to God, it is not improper to say that he is naturally vicious and depraved. Hence, in the view of our corrupt nature, Augustine hesitates not to call those sins natural, which necessarily reign in the flesh wherever the grace of God is wanting. This disposes of the absurd notion of the Manichees, who, imagining that man was essentially wicked, went to the length of assigning him a different creator, that they might thus avoid the appearance of attributing the cause and origin of evil to a righteous God. Chapter 2 Man now deprived of freedom of will and miserably enslaved. 
There are 27 sections. Section 1. Having seen that the dominion of sin, ever since the first man was brought under it, not only extends to the whole race, but has complete possession of every soul, it now remains to consider more closely whether, from the period of being thus enslaved, we have been deprived of all liberty, and if any portion still remains, how far its power extends. In order to facilitate the answer to this question, it may be proper in passing to point out the course which our inquiry ought to take. The best method of avoiding error is to consider the dangers which beset us on either side. Man, being devoid of all uprightness, immediately takes occasion from the fact to indulge in sloth, and having no ability in himself for the study of righteousness, treats the whole subject as if he had no concern in it. On the other hand, man cannot arrogate anything, however minute, to himself without robbing God of his honor, and through rash confidence subjecting himself to a fall. To keep free of both these rocks, our proper course will be, first, to show that man has no remaining good in himself, and is beset on every side by the most miserable destitution, and then teach him to aspire to the goodness of which he is devoid, and the liberty of which he has been deprived, thus giving him a stronger stimulus to exertion than he could have if he imagined himself possessed of the highest virtue. How necessary the latter point is, everybody sees. As to the former, several seem to entertain more doubt than they ought. For it being admitted as incontrovertible that man is not to be denied anything that is truly his own, it ought also to be admitted that he is to be deprived of everything like false boasting. If man had no title to glory in himself when, by the kindness of his Maker, he was distinguished by the noblest ornaments, how much ought he to be humbled now when his ingratitude has thrust him down from the highest glory to the extreme ignominy? At the time when he was raised to the highest pinnacle of honor, all which Scripture attributes to him is that he was created in the image of God, thereby intimating that the blessings in which his happiness consisted were not his own, but derived by divine communication. What remains, therefore, now that man is stripped of all his glory, than to acknowledge the God for whose kindness he failed to be grateful when he was loaded with the riches of his grace? Not having glorified him by the acknowledgment of his blessings, now at least he ought to glorify him by the confession of his poverty. In truth, it is no less useful for us to renounce all the praise of wisdom and virtue than to aim at the glory of God. Those who invest us with more than we possess only add sacrilege to our ruin. For when we are taught to contend in our own strength, what more is done than to lift us up, and then leave us to lean on a reed which immediately gives way? Indeed, our strength is exaggerated when it is compared to a reed. All that foolish men invent and prattle on this subject is mere smoke. Wherefore, it is not without reason that Augustine so often repeats the well-known saying, that free will is more destroyed than established by its defenders. It was necessary to premise this much for the sake of some who, when they hear that human virtue is totally overthrown, in order that the power of God and man may be exalted, conceive an utter dislike to the whole subject, as if it were perilous, not to say superfluous, whereas it is manifestly both most necessary and most useful. Section 2. Having lately observed that the faculties of the soul are seated in the mind and the heart, let us now consider how far the power of each extends. Philosophers generally maintain that reason dwells in the mind like a lamp, throwing light on all its counsels, and, like a queen, governing the will, 
that it is so pervaded with divine light as to be able to consult for the best, and so endued with vigor as to be able perfectly to command, that, on the contrary, sense is dull and short-sighted, always creeping on the ground, groveling among inferior objects, and never rising to true vision, that the appetite, when it obeys reason, and does not allow itself to be subjugated by sense, is born to the study of virtue, holds a straight course, and becomes transformed into will, but that when enslaved by sense, it is corrupted and depraved, so as to degenerate into lust. In a word, sense, according to our opinion, the faculties which I have mentioned above, namely, intellect, sense, and appetite, or will, the latter being the term in ordinary use, are seated in the soul, they maintain that the intellect is endued with reason, the best guide to a virtuous and happy life, provided it duly avails itself of its excellence, and exerts the power with which it is naturally endued, that at the same time, the inferior movement, which is termed sense, and by which the mind is led away to error and delusion, is of such a nature that it can be tamed and gradually subdued by the power of reason. To the will, moreover, they give an intermediate place between reason and sense, regarding it as possessed of full power and freedom, whether to obey the former or yield itself up to be hurried away by the latter. Section 3. Sometimes, indeed, convinced by their own experience, they do not deny how difficult it is for man to establish the supremacy of reason in himself, inasmuch as he is at one time enticed by the allurements of pleasure, at another deluded by false semblance of good, and at another impelled by unruly passions and pulled away, to use Plato's expression, as by ropes or sinews. For this reason, Cicero says that the sparks given forth by nature are immediately extinguished by false opinions and depraved manners. They confess that when once diseases of this description have seized upon the mind, their course is too impetuous to be easily checked, and they hesitate not to compare them to fiery steeds which, having thrown off the charioteer, scamper away without restraint. At the same time, they set it down as beyond dispute that virtue and vice are in our own power. For, say they, if it is in our choice to do this thing or that, it must also be in our choice not to do it. Again, if it is in our choice nor to act, it must also be in our choice to act. But both in doing and abstaining, we seem to act from free choice, and therefore, if we do good when we please, we can also refrain from doing it. If we commit evil, we can also shun the commission of it. Nay, some have gone the length of boasting, that it is the gift of the gods that we live, but our own that we live well and purely. Hence, Cicero says in the person of Cata, that as every one acquires virtue for himself, no wise man ever thanked the gods for it. Quote, we are praised, unquote, says he, quote, for virtue and glory in virtue, but this could not be if virtue were the gift of God, and not from ourselves, unquote. A little after he adds, quote, The opinion of all mankind is that fortune must be sought from God, wisdom from ourselves. Unquote. Thus, in short, all philosophers maintain that human reason is sufficient for right government, that the will, which is inferior to it, may indeed be solicited to evil by sense, but having a free choice, there is nothing to prevent it from following reason as its guide in all things. Section 4 
among the ecclesiastical writers, although there is none who did not acknowledge that sound reason in man was seriously injured by sin, and the will greatly entangled by vicious desires, yet many of them made too near an approach to the philosophers. Some of the most ancient writers appear to me to have exalted human strength, from a fear that a distinct acknowledgment of its impotence might expose them to the jeers of the philosophers with whom they were disputing, and also furnish the flesh, already too much disinclined to good, with a new pretext for sloth. Therefore, to avoid teaching anything which the majority of mankind might deem absurd, they made it their study, in some measure, to reconcile the doctrine of Scripture with the dogmas of philosophy at the same time making it their special care not to furnish any occasion to sloth. This is obvious from their words. Chrysostom says, quote, God, having placed good and evil in our power, has given us full freedom of choice. He does not keep back the unwilling, but embraces the willing. Unquote. Again, quote, He who is wicked is often, when he so chooses, changed into good, and he who is good falls through sluggishness and becomes wicked, for the Lord has made our nature free. He does not lay us under necessity, but furnishing apposite remedies allows the whole to depend on the views of the patient. Unquote. Again, quote, As we can do nothing rightly until aided by the grace of God, so, until we bring forward what is our own, we cannot obtain favor from above. Unquote. He had previously said, quote, As the whole is not done by divine assistance, we ourselves must of necessity bring somewhat. Unquote. Accordingly, one of his common expressions is, quote, Let us bring what is our own. God will supply the rest. Unquote. In unison with this, Jerome says, quote, It is ours to begin, God's to finish. It is ours to offer what we can, His to supply what we cannot. Unquote. From these sentences, you see that they have bestowed on man more than he possesses for the study of virtue, because they thought that they could not shake off our innate sluggishness unless they argued that we sin by ourselves alone. With what skill they have thus argued, we shall afterward see. Assuredly, we shall soon be able to show that the sentiments just quoted are most inaccurate. Moreover, although the Greek fathers above others, and especially Chrysostom, have exceeded due bounds in extolling the powers of the human will, yet all ancient theologians, with the exception of Augustine, are so confused, vacillating, and contradictory on this subject that no certainty can be obtained from their writings. It is needless, therefore, to be more particular in enumerating every separate opinion. It will be sufficient to extract from each as much as the exposition of the subject seems to require. Succeeding writers, every one courting applause for his acuteness in the defense of human nature, have uniformly, one after the other, gone more widely astray, until the common dogma came to be that man was corrupted only in the sensual part of his nature, that reason remained entire, and will was scarcely impaired. Still the expression was often on their lips, that man's natural gifts were corrupted, and his supernatural taken away. Of the thing implied by these words, however, scarcely one in a hundred had any distinct idea. Certainly were I desirous clearly to express what the corruption of nature is, I would not seek for any other expression. But it is of great importance attentively to consider what the power of man now is when vitiated in all the parts of his nature and deprived of supernatural gifts. Persons professing to be the disciples of Christ have spoken too much like the philosophers on this subject. 
as if human nature were still in its integrity, the term free will has always been in use among the Latins, while the Greeks were not ashamed to use a still more presumptuous term, viz. Greek word, Alpha, Epsilon, Tau, Epsilon, Xi, Omicron, Epsilon, Sigma, Iota, Omicron, Nu, Autexution, as if man had still full power in himself. But since the principle entertained by all, even the vulgar, is that man is endued with free will, while some who would be thought more skillful know how far its power extends, it will be necessary first to consider the meaning of the term, and afterwards ascertain by a simple appeal to Scripture what man's natural power for good or evil is. The thing meant by free will, though constantly occurring in all writers, few have defined. Origen, however, seems to have stated the common opinion when he said, It is the power of reason to discern between good and evil, of will to choose the one or other. Nor does Augustine differ from him when he says, It is a power of reason and will to choose the good, grace assisting, to choose the bad, grace desisting. Bernard, while aiming at greater acuteness, speaks more obscurely when he describes it as consent in regard to the indestructible liberty of the will, and the inalienable judgment of reason. Anselm's definition is not very intelligible to ordinary understandings. He calls it a power of preserving rectitude on its own account. Peter Lombard and the schoolmen preferred the definition of Augustine, both because it was clearer and did not exclude divine grace, without which they saw that the will was not sufficient of itself. They, however, had something of their own, because they deemed it either better or necessary for clearer explanation. First, they agree that the term will, arbitrium, has reference to reason, whose office it is to distinguish between good and evil, and that the epithet free properly belongs to the will, which may incline either way. Wherefore, since liberty properly belongs to the will, Thomas Aquinas says that the most congruous definition is to call free will an elective power, combining intelligence and appetite, but inclining more to appetite. We now perceive in what it is they suppose the faculty of free will to consist, viz., in reason and will. It remains to see how much they attribute to each. Section 5. In general, they are wont to place under the free will of man only intermediate things, viz., those which pertain not to the kingdom of God, while they refer true righteousness to the special grace of God and spiritual regeneration. The author of the work, quote, De vocation gentium, unquote, that is, on the calling of the Gentiles, wishing to show this, describes the will as threefold, viz., sensitive, animal, and spiritual. The former two, he says, are free to man, but the last is the work of the Holy Spirit. What truth there is in this will be considered in its own place. Our intention at present is only to mention the opinions of others, not to refute them. When writers treat a free will, their inquiry is chiefly directed not to what its power is in relation to civil or external actions, but to the obedience required by the divine law. The latter, I admit, to be the great question, but I cannot think the former should be altogether neglected, and I hope to be able to give the best reason for so thinking. Section 12 to 18. The schools, however, have adopted a distinction which enumerates three kinds of freedom. The first, a freedom from necessity. The second, a freedom from sin. And the third, a freedom from misery. The first, naturally so inherent in man, that he cannot possibly be deprived of it, while through sin the other two have been lost. I willingly admit this distinction. 
except insofar as it confounds necessity with compulsion. How widely the things differ, and how important it is to attend to the difference, will appear elsewhere. Section 6. All this being admitted, it will be beyond dispute that free will does not enable any man to perform good works, unless he is assisted by grace, indeed the special grace which the elect alone receive through regeneration. For I stay not to consider the extravagance of those who say that grace is offered equally and promiscuously to all. But it has not yet been shown whether man is entirely deprived of the power of well-doing, or whether he still possesses it in some though in a very feeble and limited degree, a degree so feeble and limited that it can do nothing of itself but when assisted by grace, is able also to perform its part. The master of the sentences, wishing to explain this, teaches that a twofold grace is necessary to fit for any good work, the one he calls operating. To it is owing that we effectually will what is good. The other, which succeeds this good will and aids it, he calls cooperating. My objection to this division, see later in chapter 3, section 10, and chapter 7, section 9, is that while it attributes the effectual desire of good to divine grace, it insinuates that man, by his own nature, desires good in some degree, though ineffectually. Thus Bernard, while maintaining that a good will is the work of God, concedes this much to man, viz., that of his own nature he longs for such a good will. This differs widely from the view of Augustine, though Lombard pretends to have taken the division from him. Besides, there is an ambiguity in the second division, which has led to an erroneous interpretation. For it has been thought that we cooperate with subsequent grace, inasmuch as it pertains to us either to nullify the first grace by rejecting it, or to confirm it by obediently yielding to it. The author of the work, De Vocation Gentium, expresses it thus, it is free to those who enjoy the faculty of reason to depart from grace, so that the not departing is a reward, and that which cannot be done without the cooperation of the Spirit is imputed as merit to those whose will might have made it otherwise. It seemed proper to make these two observations in passing, that the reader may see how far I differ from the sounder of the schoolmen. Still further do I differ from more modern sophists, who have departed even more widely than the schoolmen from the ancient doctrine. The division, however, shows in what respect free will is attributed to man, for Lombard ultimately declares that our freedom is not to the extent of leaving us equally inclined to good and evil in act or in thought, but only to the extent of freeing us from compulsion. This liberty is compatible with our being depraved, the servants of sin, able to do nothing but sin. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, AB, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to 
ad at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word ad in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list, so once you've sent us your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web, as well as, at times, to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full contents of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26 3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.